0: Spending these days with you and considering such a glorious theme as our Savior's words, I will build my church. And of course, he builds his church by means of the church. It's nothing to be taken lightly that our Lord's last words to his church are for us to be making, baptizing, and teaching the Lord's disciples. According to him, this is kingdom business that's to be Priority matter for every child of God, every disciple and every church. It's one of those first things to be sought in his kingdom, the expansion of that kingdom, the spread of it in the building of his worldwide church. And I don't know how it is with you, but I find it no small challenge to keep this unfinished business front and center in my heart and life. There's so much to sidetrack us. Uh, so much to pull us away, difficulties both within and without the church. Sometimes I'm embarrassed at the sort of things that pull me away from this work of building the church. Many are finding in these days uh, it to be increasingly difficult for the church just to maintain and survive, let alone to thrive in this, our mission to the world. Uh, but you, dear friends, are here because the great mission matters to you. and It matters to me, but I, I want it to matter more to me. And it's my prayer uh, that in these days, my own heart will become increasingly aligned with that which is so dear to my Savior's heart. So what is it that will keep the King's mission front and center in our hearts and lives and churches My proposition this afternoon is simply this, that a a heart for the mission is maintained by a heart for the king whose mission it is. A heart for the mission will be maintained by a heart for the king whose mission it is. Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. Those words are found in my text in 2 Samuel 23, 13 to 17, where we find David after his anointing, but before his coronation as king, 2 Samuel 23, 13 to 17. He's still running for his life from King Saul and his army. And here we find him hiding out in the cave of Adullam. I wonder if you've done any hiding lately maybe playing hide-and-seek with your kids or grandkids. If you have, then you know that once you find a good hiding spot, there's a whole lot of doing nothing. You can't go anywhere. You can't do anything. You just lay low. And so here's David, and he's hiding, not till someone counts to 30, but for days on end without moving. And that's a lot of time just to sit and to think and to remember. And we're told he was thirsty, verse 15. He longed for water, and his thirst takes him back in his mind to his hometown of Bethlehem. How well he remembered caring for his father's sheep through the heat of the day, and then coming home, parched and stopping at the well near the gate of Bethlehem, where he would drink and drink until he could drink no more. Often he had quenched his thirst with that clear, cold well water. There was nothing like it anywhere, and even now, as he thought of it, he could almost taste it. Oh, to have a drink of that water now. It was not a command. It was not even a request. It was more like a daydreaming man, thinking aloud, a whispered wish. That was all that was needed for three of David's mighty men who overheard him, for to them his wish was their command. And so they were off to fetch the water some 12 miles away. They fought their way through the enemy lines of the Philistine garrison encamped around Bethlehem. They drew water from Bethlehem's well and carried it back to David. And when he realized what they had done, he was both humbled and horrified, showing that he never intended for his wistful words to actually be carried out. He refused to drink the water that they had risked their lives' blood to fetch. Far be it from me, O Lord, to do this, he said. Is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives And so with the highest regard for these men, he poured it out before the Lord. And the whole scene closes with this comment in verse 17. Such were the exploits of the three mighty men. Now, to be sure, these exploits reveal much about these mighty men of David. It shows their courage and commitment, their strength and sacrificial service. But I would ask, don't their exploits tell us as much about David as they do about them? Yes, they risked their lives, but it was for David that they risked them. What must David have meant to them that they would not count their lives dear to themselves and charge right into the very jaws of death if only his cause may be furthered? or if only his wish might be satisfied. They clearly saw something in David that had won their hearts and that motivated them to venture their very lives just to bring him pleasure. Was it the kind way he treated these who were the 3D men in distress in debt and discontented Or was it what David had done in the Valley of Elah years earlier that they never got over is on their behalf, on on behalf of the nation that he single handedly killed the enemy giant that they all dreaded and saved the nation from becoming servants to the Philistines. That was the stuff of legends. They could not forget it. But whatever it was, it was clearly their captain himself that inspired their exploits for him. And I ask you, is it any different brothers and sisters in the greatest mission ever undertaken on earth? Has not David's greater son, our Savior, won the hearts of his servants such that we no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us and was raised again? Have we not found in our great captain, Jesus Christ, that which motivates us to lay down our lives in service to him? and to his unfinished business, which is so dear to his heart. Yes, I say a heart for the mission is gained and maintained by a heart for the king whose mission it is. So how has our king captured our hearts? Well, how about just that he who is very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped? but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And why? For love. For love. Yes, love for his heavenly father who sent him, but love for us who needed him. Love caused your incarnation. Love brought you down to me. Your thirst for my salvation has won my liberty, Paul Gerhardt writes. And so our mighty captain left the deserved comforts and glories of heaven in order to come on the saving mission that had his heart for all eternity. The mission of saving us from slavery to sin and Satan and eternal torments in hell. And bringing us into that everlasting Trinitarian fellowship of divine love a love that is better than life and a fellowship with joy unspeakable and full of glory. He became poor that he might make us rich forever. It was his eternal love for us then that broke forth in the incarnation that has won our hearts. Uh, But then it was his love in the many battles with temptation that he suffered for us. As in the wilderness we learned that he'd rather starve than sin. And he did it all for us. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified. John 17, 19. So over and over in each and every temptation, and again in Gethsemane, he denied himself out of love for us that we might have, that, that he might have a perfect righteousness. To give to us who had none to commend us before God. Oh, but it was supremely his love at Golgotha that's won our hearts forever. It was there that he not only broke through the lines of our enemies. But he conquered sin and Satan. And hell and death for us. David's men risked their lives for him. Our captain actually laid down his life for us. They did it to get David a drink from Bethlehem's well. Jesus did it to get us a drink of living water, which if a man drink, he will never thirst again. And so he drank the cup of God's wrath that we would have been drinking forever so that we might with joy draw water from the wells of salvation our Jesus was made to thirst, or we would have been thirsty forever without so much as a drop of water to quench our tongues in the agonies of hell. Cecil Alexander writes of our Creator Redeemer His are the thousand sparkling rills that from a thousand fountains burst and fill with music all the hills. And yet he says, I thirst. But more than pains that racked him then was the deep longing thirst divine that thirsted for the souls of men. Dear Lord, and one was mine. A thirst that drove him to become man for us, to become sin for us, to become a curse for us, to become forsaken for us that we might never be. Oh, who am I that for my sake my Lord should take frail flesh and die. So it's our captain's exploits of love, brethren, his love for us that have captivated our hearts. No wonder he has men in his service then who can say from the heart, your wish is my command. Such love constrains us to answer his call, follow his leading and give him our all. A heart for missions is maintained by a heart for the king whose mission it is. Now, if David's men were willing to risk it all for him, then surely our captain is worthy of nothing less from his blood-bought servants. They did it to satisfy a physical thirst of David. We do it to satisfy a deeper thirst of our Captain. A thirst for the souls of men that are precious in his sight. Love gifts from his heavenly father. Consider also they they ventured their lives to fulfill a mere wish of David. We have so much more than a mere wish from our captain. We have an authoritative command from our reigning king of love. You go and make disciples. And you baptize them and you teach them to obey everything that I've commanded. And David's men flew into action to satisfy his very wish. Will we do any less to obey his royal command? And this command is no arbitrary command. It's rather a revelation of himself. Jesus commands our windows into his heart, revealing his own deep desires And in this last command, our king has opened wide his heart to us, revealing his thirst for his worldwide church to be gathered to him, his bride to be with him where he is and to behold his glory. I wonder if we're hearing it as such. Is that the way we hear the Great Commission? In this command, he's telling us of his thirst for souls, of his great longing to save sinners, Of seeing not one missing of all that the father gave him. Is that not what lies behind this great commission? Our master's pleasure in seeing sinners turn and live. And is his pleasure not worthy of our self-denying exploits to obey and to fulfill? Then again, David's men went without any promise of success. They were willing to lose all in the mere attempt, weren't they? Well, we go with the best of promises. Uh, our great captain's presence and power with us and the ultimate success of the mission. And I'm sure we'll be hearing more of that in these days. That all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And he says, you now go. And I will be with you to the very end of the age And the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It will be. And not one will be missing of those that the father has given me, for I will raise them up at the last day. And so the promised ultimate success of our mission means it is all the more a cause worth living and dying for. Now, to be sure, there are difficulties to be overcome and faced in the work to be done. But there was some difficulties as well in fetching water from Bethlehem's well for those three mighty men. Real enemies, even the danger of death. But the pleasure of the king was deemed worthy of it. So there are fears to overcome. If we're going to press on in seeing the business of evangelism, and worldwide missions completed, we must face down our fears, fears of failure. What if some of our plans and initiatives fail? What if our missionary has to come home? Fears of being counted a fool by the world and a failure by the churches. Fears that might paralyze us and effectively sideline us from ever even venturing by faith into the raging battle. J.C. Ryle speaks of men who are overly cautious, play it safers, men eaten up with caution, who seem so afraid of doing wrong that they hardly do the right. That's been too true of me many times. There are fears to be faced. There's love of ease to be overcome, That would allure us to carve out a ministry that's comfortable and requires little of us as ministers in the way of radical faith, self-sacrifice, and the cross. Indeed, there is much to oppose us. But I would ask, is there not something here that these three mighty men of David could teach us? That as the king has the hearts of his servants, his mission will have all that we are laid at his disposal. We must keep our hearts close to the king himself. And the scary thing is that I find I can drift away from the king even as I'm busy doing his work. Robert Murray McShane must have felt it too because he warns us. There's no labor in the king's service that will make up for neglect of the king himself. It's only near his heart that we Catch and keep his burden. It's in that close fellowship with him that we feel his thirst for souls and have it become our own. It's walking with him in the Gospels. It's seeing him fish for men. It's seeing him seek and save the lost. Whether with the crowds, the very sight of which moved him with compassion. As he saw them as harassed and helpless sheep without a shepherd. And as he felt the tragic loss of a precious harvest rotting in the field for lack of workers to bring it in, or whether it's with individuals and meeting with a religious Nicodemus by night or sitting by a well and talking to an immoral Samaritan woman and telling her where living water is to be found. It, it's, it's hearing him sob over Jerusalem sinners that refuse to repent, but also seeing him rejoice with great celebration over one sinner who does repent. It's hearing him tell of his pleasure in seeing sinners turn and live. And it's in these ways and more that we sense his deep thirst for souls and of his pleasure in their salvation. And so it's in this near communion with Christ that our hearts begin to beat more and more in sync with his. And When he has our hearts, he'll have our labors, He'll have our time, he'll have our prayers, he'll have our money, he'll have our life. And his thirst will be our thirst. And then nothing will seem too costly to see his thirst satisfied. So let us never substitute service for Christ in the place of communion with Christ. But let all of our work for him be done in moment-by-moment fellowship with him and in dependence upon him, fishing for men with him, gathering with him, sowing, watering, reaping with him. And then it will be our increasing joy in life to bring people to our wonderful Savior and to bring pleasure to our worthy King. Oh, that someone would bring me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. So said David. And I wonder if we're hearing David's greater son. Oh, that someone would fetch me glory from the nations. Oh, that new endeavors might be undertaken to make disciples and plant churches and train faithful men to evangelize and preach the word and to Pastor my churches. Oh, that someone would get serious and lay hold of me to send out workers into this harvest field. Oh, that someone would ask me to do those greater works so that I might bring glory to my father. Oh, that someone would say, here am I. Send me, use me in this great work of building your church. Now, this deep thirst in our Savior means nothing to the world out there. But by grace, it has a powerful pull on the hearts of the king's men and women. Then let us who know our king be strong and do exploits. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven. What could we ever want in a savior that we have not found in your son? There's everything in him to cause us to love him. Forgive us for our earthly mindedness. Wash us from our worldliness and deliver us from mediocrity. Make your son our one consuming passion and his pleasure and his mission our delight. And, O God, be gracious to us in these days together. And cause your face to shine upon us and that, that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. We ask it in the worthy name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.